You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another special COVID-19 episode of The Good GP, currently being rolled out as a joint project with the Just a GP podcast. Today, I am joined again by Dr. Aaron Chambers to do an update on telehealth for general practices during COVID-19. Now, we did meet and record a podcast on the 20th of March on this topic, but as with everything COVID-19 related at the moment, there have been substantial changes to the telehealth environment since that time. So today we will be providing an update. As a disclaimer, this new episode is being recorded on the 6th of April 2020 and information presented is up to date on this date. Now, before we get started with our formal discussions, I do want to give a quick update around MBS changes that have happened relevant to the telehealth space. As of Monday the 30th of March, GP consultations delivered via telephone or video for any patient are able to be billed under Medicare. The types of consultations have been expanded from just time-based consults to also including some health checks, chronic disease management plans and mental health plans. The initial requirement for the patient to be seen by the GP or then the practice in the last 12 months has now been lifted. The requirement for all patients to be bulk billed has also been lifted as of today, 6th of April, with the announcement that private billing will now be supported and the patient is able to access a Medicare rebate in this situation. It should be noted though that people with concession cards, children under the age of 16 and people who are considered vulnerable to COVID-19 still need to be bulk billed under the current legislation. Those considered vulnerable to COVID-19 include those that are required to self-isolate or self-quarantine in association with COVID-19, patients aged over the age of 70, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients over the age of 50, pregnant women, parents of children under 12 months, those with a chronic medical condition, those who are immunocompromised, and those who meet the current national triage protocol criteria for suspected COVID-19. For those concession card holders and children under the age of 16, you can claim the bulk billing incentive, which has been doubled over the time of these COVID-19 telehealth item numbers being available. In addition to this update on the MBS item numbers, I also wanted to let listeners know that the RACGP has recently released some materials to support members on the use of telehealth, and these include the guide to providing telephone and video consultations in general practice, as well as telephone and video consultation in general practice flowcharts. You can find these guidelines on the RACGP website. So now I have all of that out of the way, we will move into some discussion around the practicalities of implementing video consultations in general practice. And to do this, I am again joined by Dr. Aaron Chambers, Brisbane-based GP, practice owner of Grow Medical Clinics and part of the team behind GP Consults, a telehealth option for Australian general practices, recently launched and currently free to use. So welcome back, Aaron, and thanks very much for joining me again. Thanks, Christina. Now, I wanted to start off by talking about what are some of the options for video consultations in general practice and what kinds of things do we need to consider when we're choosing between these types of platforms? Yep, I know there are a few solutions that are developed in Australia that are available. Health Direct have one, CoView and GP Consults are probably the top ones to recommend. I mean, everyone can go out in there and have a look at them. They've got various benefits. Some need to be integrated to your software. Some are more easy to pick up and just implement without needing to integrate. I think the the important thing to talk about in terms of security is that there is some use going on of Zoom and to a lesser extent FaceTime and Skype. There are some significant security concerns with Zoom. I know that has in the original announcement from the Prime Minister, they talked about Zoom, FaceTime, Skype. As a general rule, they aren't really appropriate for using as telehealth solutions. 
mainly because of their security issues. There are also issues with just a patient being able to call you back, say, for example, with FaceTime and with Skype. Uh, it's a bit clunky to get it going on either end, but it's very important that you go and have a look at the security, make sure that whatever you're using is hosted in Australia and is subject to Australian privacy legislation. Uh, and the biggest concern around Zoom is if you look at their privacy uh, settings, they do actually, in, in a lot of their products, have the ability to hold on to the video from the patient consultation. So yeah, just make sure you watch out for that one. Yeah, so that's some great information. Actually, interestingly, I just watched one of the um, updates from Department of Health, which was chaired by Michael Kidd. Uh, some of our listeners will be aware that they've been releasing some weekly updates. And in that webinar today, they actually recommended against using the free software due to concerns that they don't necessarily meet the end-to-end encryption requirements that is required from a cybersecurity perspective and to look at using commercially available software. So I think that is an important update because previously Department of Health and I guess the government had been fairly platform agnostic in their recommendations, but it is still an important consideration given that general practices and the information we're passing on during a consultation is actually quite prized information when it comes to cyber attacks. So it is important for general practices to be aware and to not be putting themselves at unnecessary risk. That's true. And it really is beholden upon clinicians to make sure that whatever they're using is compliant with their own uh, privacy policy within their practice, which should be compliant with Australian privacy principles. So I don't want to scare people away from using these things, but just making sure that we are encouraging practices to use the right technology in this situation. I'm interested to know, because you've obviously implemented this quite successfully in your practice. So I'm keen to hear about your own experience with how you've gone about implementing video consultations in your practice. So I think the first thing is leadership in the practice. The RACGP have a pandemic practice plan implementation support tool that you can use. And in there, it talks about making sure you clearly appoint a leader in the practice, both from an admin perspective and from a uh, clinical perspective. And that is the first thing that really gets this going. I think I've seen practices where that hasn't happened or there isn't clinical leadership and things don't tend to go so well. So that's probably the first point I'd make. Second is that then really it's all about communicating clearly, both to patients and to your admin team, about what is the plan for your practice and just making sure it's written, that it's simple that it's really easily digestible both for patients and for the admin staff so they can actually implement the plan. So I think there's a lot of chatter on Facebook, etc., GPs down under those sorts of groups about what you can and can't do. But in the end, you have to translate that into simple advice for your team. So I guess what we did was have a few meetings early on. We use an online uh, teleconferencing platform to discuss what our plan would be and then really decided what were the parameters that the clinicians in our clinic felt comfortable to deal with coming into the practice. So really defining what's the population that you're happy to see in clinic and what are the triage guidelines that you need to have before they come into clinic. So for us, it worked out that eventually we settled on a telehealth first approach where pretty much every patient who needs to come in has a telehealth consult. They have a chat about whatever their issue is. They deal with all the history and the information gathering before they come into clinic. And then if required, they'll come in. And if not, then it's finished before they even come into the clinic. The other component is to make sure that's enabled with a good digital workflow. So we've got both the ability to book them through the phone and we've implemented online bookings as well so that patients can book telehealth bookings. And that's made simpler where you've got the ability to simply have the clinician say, yep, I'm ready for that patient by the solution that you use. 
Yeah, great, Aaron. So I think it's really helpful for the GPs and practice owners out there to hear firsthand experience of setting this up successfully in a practice. And you mentioned about having that sort of clear, calm leadership right from the outset. And I think that's something that I reflected on, I think is quite important. And the ability as well, I guess, to ensure that there's quite nimble decision-making, as we've been saying, because obviously everything is changing at rapid rate. And what you put in place maybe a few weeks ago is now actually not necessarily going to be the best practice ongoing. So it's having that clear leadership to be able to inform the practice and inform the staff around what those changes in workflows need to be and how uh, the practice will continue to adapt as this continues to evolve. That's right. On that point, Dana, I just noticed that uh, the one thing that was really essential in part of our response was being rapidly adapting, but also then saying, okay, at this point in time, we're going to see how that works for two or three days before we change again. Because I think the inclination is when things are changing so rapidly is to keep changing, 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 but sometimes then your whole team can't get stock. And I think one of the best things to do is take stock and then be able to think, okay, this is working, this isn't, let's change these few things. And it makes for a much more rational change process. Good point. Be flexible, but don't overwhelm everyone. (laughs) That's right. So look, for practices that are looking at rolling this out, and maybe for even practices that have started doing some telephone consultations, but haven't fully moved to video consultations yet, or maybe they're not doing anything much at the moment, or maybe they're just still not really satisfied that they've got the right sort of processes in place. What would your tips be for a smooth transition towards video consultations? So I agree, absolutely start simple. Don't try and suddenly change your whole process all at once because otherwise you'd be destined for failure. But I think, for example, the reason that we came up with GP consults was just keeping it simple. Instead of trying to reinvent your whole workflow, um, having something that links in into your natural workflow. So, you know, GPs are really used to going, okay, I've finished with this patient, I'm ready for the next one. I'll call my next patient and just think about it very simply thinking, okay, in order to call my next patient, rather than going out to the waiting room, you just have to go into your workflow, type in the patient's mobile and send off to them in our instance. So making sure that you've looked through how to actually go about getting the next patient and then ideally using an existing software like your, your best practice or medical director, whatever it is you use to keep your patient notes in the same way that you've always kept them and then having a clear workflow for how that links in with billing the patient. So uh, making sure that there's a clear communication between doctor and receptionist as to, do I just bill it through the normal mechanism? Have you got some external workflow that has to be changed because you've got to chase up the patient? And I think for that reason, even though the uh, the private billing has been brought in, we haven't changed that aspect yet because I think at the moment, it's much, much easier to utilize the bulk bill items for telehealth than to go suddenly reinvent his workflow yet again And it's also very difficult to communicate to patients who is actually eligible for bulk billing and and who must be bulk billed and who might have to pay a bill. Yeah. And what about, how have you gone about educating patients that this is available? You know, how are you promoting it to them? And what kind of instructions are you having to give them? So, um, I mean, we've got multiple channels that are doing that. Most practices have a Facebook these days. Pretty much everyone has a website. So we've got lots of information there for patients detailing how to do it through the website. We've then also had clear channels of communication out to patients. I think since this whole situation started, we've sent two or three emails out to all our patients, which is very unusual. We don't usually email at that level of frequency. And then uh, just having the whole team on board 
such that the receptionist can clearly explain to patients what to expect. So they're told, you know, when it's time for your appointment, you don't need to have come in, you just sit there, wait, you'll get a text message and click a button. So it goes back to that leadership and that clear communication at the start. Once that's done, then everyone really knows what to expect and they're set up for all those practicalities like, you know, the timing, how it's going to work. They're all expecting what's going to happen. Yeah, excellent. All right, so let's talk then about the actual video consultation itself. Do you want to talk through some practical tips for the, you know, actually carrying out the video consultation? Yeah, so make sure you've got your IT people on board and that they've checked all your um, firewall settings. Make sure your telehealth solution will actually work. Make sure you've got uh, all the sufficient webcams and the appropriate uh, microphone, etc. Make sure you're comfortable. Make sure you've checked it in your settings. So I know a lot of GPs at the moment are working from home, which is very unusual. And make sure you've checked it both at home and the office. Make sure they both work. And if you're just new to telehealth, make sure you try it out on friends or family first as just a, a dummy consultation. So log in, check that you've got yourself set up exactly like you would for a patient and then give it a go on your spouse or a friend. I think that's a good starting point at least. And then... I guess making sure, like for us, we've got a, an autofill in the um, practice software just to prompt around the stuff if it's not very familiar. Say, okay, make sure you talk to them about consent. Make sure you know what to say to the patient as to how to coach them through logging in if there's anything they need to do on their end. Make sure you confirm their identity. So, you know, if it's a patient you're not familiar with, make sure you're clearly using uh, the three identifiers as per um, accreditation guidelines. And also then just thinking about who else could be in the room. I think that's a, a one that a lot of people aren't expecting. You know, you can see the patient quite clearly, but unlike when they're in your own office, you don't know who else is there. So just confirm with them that they're, they're in a private place and that anyone who is there, they're happy for that person to be part of that consultation. And making sure you've got some clear contact details to contact them in case there, uh, anything goes wrong. Excellent. A question I commonly hear around is like, which patients are actually appropriate for telehealth consultations how do we triage patients to make sure that we are choosing appropriately when telehealth is advisable versus a face-to-face consultation because obviously there are some things that will still need to be done face-to-face have you got any tips in that situation look i think there is a bit of science in this and some uh, there's a company in uh, switzerland who has done a lot of work in this space in terms of uh, weeding out like what's appropriate what's not appropriate for telehealth I think the beauty of this becoming so generalised in our society is really suddenly everyone is potentially appropriate for telehealth because telehealth that's being provided is supported by a bricks and mortar clinic. And I can't stress how important that is that we, through this whole process, we maintain that continuity between local community and the solution being provided. So I can think of examples of patients I've, I've consulted with recently who've really had an issue that ultimately does need to be seen in clinic. child with otorrhea, for example, you can still take a very good history through that mechanism and you can triage really effectively. I think the other thing we've found where we've flipped now to 70 or 80% of our consultations occurring via telehealth, that means that patients are suddenly separated in space and time from each other in the clinic. And it also opens up opportunities where patients who do have a very pressing concern, if they've been seen via telehealth and triaged, they can actually be seen within minutes in the clinic. So um, it overcomes some of those issues where there is no physical clinic to support uh, the delivery of telehealth. And if they're very close to you, actually that uh, that opens up possibilities where you can actually get them in very quickly and it can actually be an augment to your um, effective delivery of healthcare rather than getting in the way. 
Great. Examination tips. I know that we talked about this last time, but I'm keen to go back there again because this podcast will inevitably replace the previous podcast we did. So for those who might not have gotten the chance to listen to that one, just thinking about practical tips around examination over video consultation. Can you give us a few tips? Probably uh, light is one of them. So making sure you've got a really good source of light at the patient end. You know, you underestimate how important good, clean, even light is. Sometimes you'll find patients will tend to sit with maybe the uh, a window at their back or in a darkened room. Just getting them to a place where there's good, even light, that'll make your examination of, say, skin lesions much easier. And also you can use that light source for other things. I think we talked the other day about uh, having a look down a patient's throat and using the camera in clever ways where you can actually get really quite zoomed. And you can actually use it quite cleverly to, to get up really close. The thing that I'm looking forward to experimenting with at some point, there's a uh, company in Brisbane called Steffi, which is very exciting. So they've got a uh, digital stethoscope that they use and um, can enable remote examination. I think that's beyond the scope of most general practice clinics, but there'll be things like that just around the corner. Christine, we did talk a little bit around, uh, like say, assessing the sick child the other day. Yeah. Um, any other particular examination things that you, you had wondered about? Yeah, I think just reinforcing what we talked about the other week, I guess, thinking through um, respiratory examination. Are they talking in sentences? How alert are they? You know, what does the child look like in front of you? You know, maybe thinking about teaching the parent or the patient themselves to do some of the examination, you know, the capillary refill or, or what have you. Um, so that uh, I guess that kind of informs you as well. It's quite remarkable how much you can actually do over video consultation there is quite a substantial amount of it we can get from the video so it's good I think the other thing is enlisting the help of a, uh, a friend or family so you know as the um, the restriction requirements increase I think more and more patients are reluctant to come into the clinic but they still want stuff looked at so if you can get them to have a friend or family use the camera for them in order to show whatever it is that they're interested in or for elderly patients perhaps a younger member of the family might be able to help them with the camera and I guess always reverting back to some of those the options for vital signs you know can the patient feel their pulse you know can we teach them how to measure their heart rate jump on a set of scales if you're monitoring them for fluid overload or and even encouraging some patients that might have the financial means to invest in a blood pressure monitor or something so they can keep an eye on those kinds of things at home as well that's right. And we discussed last week how good this is for health literacy, teaching the patients to take more charge of their own condition and measure their own parameters, uh, I think will be only for the long-term benefit. Definitely. All right. Just um, one final sort of practical questions around the issue around scripts and radiology requests and pathology requests. You know, the patient's not there in front of you. How do we actually get these things to the patient or directly to the provider? Just any final tips around that for the GPs out there? So the script one is very exciting. I think most of you will have heard about the fast track of the legislation around electronic prescribing. Um, that looks like it's getting much closer. As an interim step, you can actually um, take a photo of the, uh, the script and send it through. Um, at the moment, the paper copy still does need to get to the pharmacy eventually, but um, it looks like that'll eventually be abolished and it doesn't look too far away. So hopefully um, powers that be can get really accelerating on that one. The other one um, around radiology requests, very difficult to get over. It is still going to need a signature on it at the moment. So you probably still need to do the old-fashioned print on that one. Some pathology labs will uh, accept electronic referrals through their system uh, using secure messaging that's sort of integrated into practice software. And 
otherwise uh, a useful trick is to sort of quasi print the uh, pathology request and then and then print it out as a batch when you get into uh, into the practice or saving in the patient chart and getting the, the reception to print it out for you and have a batch there ready to sign when you next get in. Yeah, excellent. And probably worthwhile encouraging GPs to get in contact with their local providers and see what their preferred method of communicating is. There are a lot of these providers that are thinking outside the box. Certainly, like you mentioned, with the prescriptions being able to email or even SMS directly to the pharmacy um, in addition to good old fax. It is certainly an evolving space and probably encourage everyone to find out what their local providers are preferring and make sure that they're utilising that. Well, thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate your time yet again this evening on such an important topic and look forward to continuing the update soon. Thanks.